This morning, we're in the book of Exodus again. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 18. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I know that it gets long, and some of you may begin to lose energy before I get done. So if you need to stand up and shake a bit or turn in circles or raise your arms or stretch, feel free. You're not going to bother me. I'm just going to keep reading because I want us to hear all of the story that takes place uh, in Exodus 18. Uh, so Exodus chapter 18, again, if you're in the, the YouVersion Bible app, that information should be there for you. If you're online in our uh, church online platform, there's a little tab there where you can go straight to the scriptures and you can read that right beside what's happening on the screen. It'll also be here on the screen. Uh, if you'd like to see it there. So we've tried to make it available in as many ways as at all possible. And after we read the text, uh, as is our practice, I will uh, speak, this is the word of the Lord, your response, thanks be to God. We'll let the passage sit for a moment or two before we walk into talking about it. So Exodus chapter 18 says this, it says, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to Jethro. He had taken them, who had taken them in, sorry. Moses' first son was named Gershom. For Moses had said that when the boy was born, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. His second son was named Eliezer. For, jo for Moses had said, the God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived while Moses and the people were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. They asked about each other's welfare and then went into Moses' tent. Moses told his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. We're in verse 9. Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel as he rescued them from the land of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro said, for he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I know now that the Lord is greater than all other gods because he rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron and all the elders of Israel came out and joined him in a sacrificial meal in God's presence. We're going to keep going in verse 13. It says, the next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited before him from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I am the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. 
I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me, and let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to Him. Teach them God's decrees and give them His instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures and all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 150, and 10. These men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought ma the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller ones themselves. Soon after this, Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, who returned to his own land. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses gets this really important visit from his father-in-law Jethro. Part of what makes it so important is that Jethro is the only father figure we ever see in Moses' life. The only father figure that is influencing him, that is providing love for him, that is caring for him. And the story tells us that Jethro had heard all that God had done for Moses and the Israelites. So he came to see it for himself. He came to hear the stories direct from Moses' lips as to what God had been doing on their behalf. And then it tells us that together they celebrated what God had done. They celebrated Moses' partnership, Moses working with God, and they celebrated all the miraculous things that God had done on their behalf. And I imagine, the story doesn't give us all the kind of in-between-the-line stuff, but I imagine this was an incredible boost of affirmation that Moses needed to continue to lead the people forward. The visit from this father figure, the, the encouragement, the words of kindness, the words of affirmation with regards to what God had done and what Moses was doing in his faithfulness, I suspect was this incredible boost to move forward. Because it wasn't always easy leading those people. 
But his father-in-law spoke in, and I think that there is value. We're not going to spend time here, but I do want to just hit it as we move by. There is value in us recognizing how incredibly important it is that you and I encourage, especially in people that we're mentoring or we're discipling or our children or those that we're somehow providing some kind of spiritual oversight or insight to, that we are encouraging in their lives their faithfulness to God. That we're seeing it, that we're noticing, and that we're continuing to affirm and speak into it so that they, so that we, when in direction, in desire to continue to follow after Jesus faithfully. Alongside this encouragement, these words of affirmation, I think something that is significant about Jethro's visit is that this same man, this same father figure, the same man who encouraged what God had done and what Moses was doing was also willing to hold Moses accountable to who God had called him to be and who God had created him to be. Exodus 18 tells us that Jethro recognized that the pressures that were on Moses' life were too much for him to handle on his own. He was serving as guide, as provider, as intercessor, as peacekeeper, as teacher, as leader, and on and on and on and on. All of the roles of leadership were continuing to fall in Moses' lap. Moses was responsible for all of this. The Israelites needed Moses in those roles. That was his response to his father-in-law. They need me here. Moses wanted to fulfill the needs that they had for him. He wanted to be able to be what they needed for him. And, and I wonder, the passage doesn't actually say this, but we see it so frequently in the lives of so many leaders. I also wonder if there was a desire in Moses to be needed. Hey, Dwight, can you hear me in there? Will you, have it? Will you pull my levels down just a tad? I'm getting just a little bit of feedback. Pull me down just a little bit. Can you also hear me okay? Yeah, good. Um, I was starting to hear a little bit. Um, thank you, Dwight. Then I can talk a little louder also. Um, except I lost my train of thought as to where I was going. So we see in this, the people needed Moses. Moses wanted to fulfill their needs. But also I wonder if Moses liked being needed. And to begin to give away responsibilities makes a person less needed, less necessary. So Moses had continued to try and function in all of these roles. He had continued to try to serve in this multitude of ways. And it's unclear who was actually to blame for such a thing. Was this about the Israelites and what they were asking of him? Was this about Moses and what he was taking on? We don't know. And one of the beautiful things about what Jethro does is that Jethro comes at it not concerned about who was to blame or whose fault it was. He doesn't begin to identify what's gone wrong or how it's happening. He simply looks at Moses and says that the responsibility for fixing it belongs to Moses. Moses was living beyond his own limits. Ruth Haley Barton says this about him, says Moses' leadership was not only about leading the people to the promised land, it was also about guiding them into a way of life that was good for them in the here and now. For Moses to not only lead them forward, but also to lead them in a way of living, he had to model that for them, which meant that he had to understand his own limitations. He had to set up some appropriate systems for living, for leading. He had to devise a better method for how they were going to do community together. He had to create 
a sustainable way of living inside the limits that he was created with. He had to create an intentional plan for his own faithfulness. And Jethro gave Moses some advice on how to do so, some tips on you should try this or you should do this as he talked about laying out these smaller groups. And this morning, I want us to recognize the limits that we know existed, that we saw existed in Moses, and also come back to the reality that we, too, are created limited. Believe it or not, you and I cannot do it all. We cannot be everywhere. We cannot solve every problem. None of us can save every victim. No matter how bad we want to or how bad we try, we cannot do all of this. We were never intended to do all of it. We were created as limited beings. Pete Scazzaro says it beautifully this way. He says, we find God's will for our lives in our limitations. I say he says it beautifully, but I have to be honest and say that that statement hurts just a bit. That that's a little hard for me to receive the idea that we find God's will for our lives in our own limitations. And yet the truth is we are not God. Only God is limitless. Therefore, we are limited, and yet God has created us with dreams and desires for our life. And the only way in which we can ever find those is if you and I are willing to submit to our own limits and submit to God's limitlessness. If we're willing to trust God more than we trust ourselves, getting to this place where we can understand who God has called us to be and how God is calling us forward, this idea we've been talking about of strengthening our souls means that we must embrace our limits, whether we like them or not. And that means that we have to discover our limitations. And there's a multitude of them. Some of them that are created into our character and our being and and just our personality and the way we exist. Some of them that exist simply because of the fact that we are human beings. We need sleep. And because we need sleep, we're limited in some way. We need times of rest. We need times to recalibrate our brain. We need times to to gain hold of our temper or our anger, to, to catch that once again because we are limited. There's a multitude of limits that we could walk through. And there's some of them that are, are general for all of us and some of us, some of them that are specific for each of us. But us discovering our own limits brings us to the place that we can be fully reliant on God and that we can recognize the need to reorient our entire being, our entire life, our entire schedule, our entire budget, everything that we have and everything that we are fully surrendered to Jesus. But we can only do so, we will only do so if we recognize in ourselves our own limitations and we create a structure of living that speaks to those limitations And also recognizes that because of our limitations, we want to be deeply committed to the things that we value, the things that we were created to do and to be. So in doing so, a 
historic kind of religious practice, one that we may not be very familiar with because it's not been a regular practice among some of our stream of faith, is what's called a rule of life. The word comes out of a Latin root. The Latin word is regula. And it's the same word that we use to come up with the idea, that we use for the word trellis. And a trellis, if you don't know what it is, is typically a wooden structure that we would build in order to help vines grow. It keeps them off the ground. It drives them in the manner in which we want to go. And if they're fruit-bearing vines, a trellis is good because it makes it most possible, most likely that that vine can produce the best fruit. The idea of a rule of life, the idea of a structure or a trellis for our faith life, ideally does the same thing for Christ followers. Let me read a couple definitions of how um, some folks define a rule of life. Barton says, a rule of life is simply a pattern of attitudes, behaviors, and practices that are regular and routine and are intended to produce a certain quality of life and character in us. And Pete Scazzaro defines it this way, a rule of life very simply is an intentional conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. This rule of life, this this trellis, this structure is a predefined structure that you and I would build around our life so that we define the direction of our life in a way that helps it grow in consistency with who God has called us to be. This structure brings us to a place that we can live lives that are deeply defined by the love of God and the love of others. As we talk about the idea of a, of a rule of life, part of what makes it interesting, I guess the, the beauty and the burden of this idea is that a rule of life is not a one-size-fits-all practice. It's not a one-size-fits-all structure with the idea that, that I could come up with a rule of life and hand it to you and say, here you go, here's what you do. We all do exactly the same thing because we were each created with unique gifts and unique callings. So because of that, the way in which a rule of life gets played out for us, gets defined and described and lived for us is unique. Each of us will do it differently. Now, there are general things that are true. Generally, we know that as Christ followers, we're called to grow in our love for God and our love for others. And we can very simply state it that way. So because of that, there are overlapping practices things that we would each do in order to grow in that and understand that. Things like scripture reading, prayer, worship, Sabbath keeping, generosity. We could go on and on through a list of spiritual disciplines that are kind of common general spiritual disciplines that we might experience in each of our lives out of that general calling to love God and to love others. But because we are each individual's the ways in which we practice each of those things, the ways in which we participate in each of those spiritual practices might differ for us based on our individuality. So for just a moment, I want to talk about the idea of what it might look like if you 
were to set up a rule of life for yourself, some of the practices that you would go through, some of the questions that you would ask that I feel like would be valuable for you in beginning to plan the idea of what would a rule of life look like if I were to try and put it into practice in my own life. So there's a link that Jerry's going to pull up. And if you have a phone or a tablet or something like that, this link right here, the worksheet's going to look like that. But this link right here will take you to where it is online. Also, as I mentioned, inside the YouVersion Bible app, Cindy has it already linked in there. We'll also make it available this week on some of our platforms so that you have the ability to take this home. But in many ways, I'm going to read through much of what's there, much of the questions that are there. I'm going to do it in a quicker version because this... What happened to my mic? There we come. This can't happen in five or 10 minutes. This is not a simple practice that we would walk through in this room and, and be done. It's going to take time and prayer and maybe some journaling and some deep thought about who you are and who you believe God is calling you to be as you continue to walk forward. So let me read through some of the things that you might think, think through and think about. Feel free to make some notes, or again, that printout is available to you. What aspect of life has God given you a passion for? What commitments has God placed in your life? What things make you feel most fully alive? Like you're most fully living into who God has created you to be. On the opposite side of that, what sucks the life out of you? Those are the kind of things we want to push away. And yet sometimes we also have to ask the question, what is necessary? Truly necessary. If we look back at the story of Moses, we remember that as Jethro came, Moses thought what he was doing was necessary, but Jethro believed there was another way to do it. So what is truly necessary? Like if you have children, caring for your children is necessary, not optional. You might not love it all the time, but it is necessary. So what is necessary in your life? What areas of your life most need to experience transformation? How badly do you want to live into who God has created you to be? Beginning to ask some of this list of questions will help us identify some of the things that we value, some of the things that God has created and called us specifically to, some of the things that we want to be focused on. And those values give us something to, to center our practices around as we look towards growing in these values, in these things that we believe that we're responsible for and need to do. Different people, different um, groups define what that looks like different. Scazzaro, as he talks about the values that he identifies, he talks about prayer and rest and work and relationships. So he tries to balance his life in those four categories. At Valley, we often talk corporately about the idea that we should each be involved in personal whole life discipleship, that we should all be involved in investing in the Valley family, that we should all be a part of missional living. These are kind of our values that we've said we want life to be lived in these ways. We have some other guiding principles, but those are kind of the three core values we've committed ourselves to. So then based on those values, based on those things that rise to the surface, these particular things, 
we put in place practices to help reinforce those, to help us grow in those, to help us experience transformation in those. So there's a second grouping of questions that you'll find, and they're questions like this. What spiritual practices help you best grow in your desire to love God and love others? What practices introduce you to a fullness of God? What practices stretch you beyond your comfort zones and push you into greater faithfulness and surrender? What activities pull you away from your calling and your values? Again, we can't define what to say yes to unless we do some saying no to some other things. And I want to encourage you as you think through these questions to think about practices that are both those that we typically define as spiritual and those that we might not define as spiritual. Often we'll walk through these lists and we'll think about things like scripture reading or prayer or maybe even going on a spiritual retreat. But we leave out things that we don't think of as spiritual in the same way. Like maybe a part of a rule of life for you needs to be date nights. Because if you are married, it is necessary that you nurture your marriage. That's part of who God has called and created you to be now. That's part of what you've taken on. Maybe one of the practices that needs to be thought through is physical exercise. Because we are called to take care of and protect these physical bodies that we have to serve God out of. I think that too often as we think about these practices, we limit them only to the things that are clearly spiritual. And it's important for us to understand that full surrender means not only that we give over the things that we think of as spiritual, but that we give every exercise, every practice, every bit of our life to Jesus. We surrender everything. And that includes our marriage and our raising our kids and our jobs and our budgets and everything about the ways in which we live life that may or may not be defined by some people as spiritual. After that, as we, after we think through the values and the practices, then we ask some questions that are just practical questions. With what kind of regularity should each of these be practiced? Is it daily? Is it a couple times a day? Is it weekly? Is it a few times throughout the week? Is it monthly? Is it yearly? Is it seasonally? Like maybe you say, I need to take a, a, a retreat away. It makes me a better mother, a better father, a better husband, a better wife. So I'm going to find a way to create two days away every year, and I'm going to go and do that. Maybe that's what it means for you to be fully surrendered to who Jesus has called and created you to be. And then another practical question that you ask is, which of these need to be practiced personally and which of these need to be practiced communally? So which of these do I do alone? And which do I do that are in, the, in community? And maybe that community is a small group like a family. Maybe that community is a large group like your church. As we think through the idea of faithfulness and a rule of life, I think that often in our pursuit of faith, we stop way too early. If we hang on to this idea of, of gardening and a, and a trellis and what it looks like to, to plant something. Obviously, if we just plant a seed, there's some measure of, of desire in that. We have shown the idea that we hope something will happen. We hope something will grow. So we drop a seed in the ground and then we hope that something takes place. But if we move further into what it means for us to grow this vine, 
And we also go into building the trellis, building the structure, defining which way we hope that it'll go. We have to put forethought in and planning some intentionality. Now still, in both of those scenarios, just planting a seed or planting a seed with a trellis around it, it is still God that makes that vine grow. We do not somehow gain full control over that. The Holy Spirit does the work of transformation in us. But the Holy Spirit desires of us more than a one-time prayer of salvation in which we plant a seed in the ground and then hope that something comes out of it. God is calling us to more. He's calling us a lot to a life of intentionality and full surrender. So I invite you to consider what would it look like for you and for me to build this rule of life, to build this trellis that defines and guides our life of faith moving forward. I think that surviving, actually thriving in this season of COVID demands intentionality from us. As we walk into this season that has been full of, of suffering and difficulty and pain and conflict everywhere, you and I being formed as people who fully love God and other people who are living more and more faithfully every day, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much conflict is around us, no matter how bad things look on the news, no matter how scared we may be from time to time, us continuing to be formed into who God has created us to be requires of us deep intentionality our soul being strengthened requires of us full surrender. So I wonder, as we know that this isn't over yet, the conflicts continue, the pandemic continues, an election is coming. For you and I to be fully defined as Christ followers, to fully follow after Jesus, to fully surrender, what would it look like for us to commit in a way that means we create this, this structure, this rule of life, so that we have faithful practices to rely on in leaning into so that transformation happens in us? I want to encourage you to try it. Check out the link, go find the worksheet and spend some time. The picture on the bottom fits Scazzaro's ideas of some of what he's talked about because some created in more of a, a format that looks like some write it in paragraphs and pages, some in lists and bullet points, but what would it look like for you to define and to follow after a structure like this? Pray with me, would you? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you for calling us into new life. Give us the courage to surrender all of our life to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.